Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring mystical light and my guest is James Tunney. He is a Renaissance man, an artist, a poet, a scholar, a novelist. He is the author of The Mystery of Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, as well as The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and also two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September, and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. James is a barrister. He has lectured all over the world on international law. He currently lives in Gothenburg, Sweden with his family. And I will now switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. I'm very happy to be with you once again. Great, great to meet you, uh, Jeff. I feel like the son of Santa here today. Beard is getting a bit long, <laughs> and it's approaching Christmas season as as well. So, uh, yeah, you almost look like Santa Claus. It's appropriate appropriate time to talk about light and the, the coming of light. You know, I was reminded of my undergraduate days at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where the uh, motto of the school was Newman Lumen, which I always took to mean something like the inner light of consciousness illuminates the world. And uh, more recently, I, I looked it up and I discovered the word Newman actually refers to uh, divine will or divine light. Uh, that's right, and we have the whole uh, concept of the numinous, which is is very very important, and and has been developed to explain the access to the sacred, um, and th that's that's it ties in very well with the idea that I've tried to explain of spiritual light, and the idea that uh, for thousands of years. Uh, that people have approached light as a spiritual force because it's not just the physical uh, or psychological manifestations of light, but the effect of light on the individual. And spiritual light is the basis of all much mystical tradition and in the perennial philosophy. And in the, in the last book, I tried to identify what I thought were, was a, a structure of spiritual or mystical evolution, which we can see in a number of different uh, different religions, but or, or spiritual traditions, but which I'm putting as, as my uh, as my uh, indication of a pattern for evolution. Perhaps I, I could explain that uh, to begin with. Yes, let's start there. I argue that there are five illuminations. That if we look at many spiritual traditions that there are different senses of where one goes. And in the perennial philosophy, we can see some kind of common core. But this is my statement of where I think the path of spiritual evolution is. And my central argument, the one thing that I'm arguing in, in all our conversations is that we need to spiritually evolve. And a lot of our failures and challenges 
come from that failure to spiritually evolve. evolve. The first uh, illumination uh, I, I would identify is the spirit itself, that the astonishing light of being, as has been, is been explained by the 14th century mystic Hafiz, is in everybody. So the essence of our being is spirit or spiritual consciousness, as Evelyn Underhill talks about. Now, this is the thing that science has been looking for. With the Enlightenment, they have been trying to replace the spirit, and they have largely failed to do so. So all the explorations of consciousness, to me, represent a failed attempt to replace what was there before, and which, in its simplest form, applying Occam's razor, uh, should persist and should be utilized. So there is a uh, there is a fear I have in the co in, in the context of the evolution of contemporary society that is a type of gaslighting process, which of course refers back to the the play by Patrick Hamilton and the films in 1940-44, whereby a, a woman is driven insane by people or husband messing around with her perception of, of the world. And there's a bit of that going on in relation to the idea of the spirit. And people like Raymond Tallis, uh, in his concepts of, uh, who is an atheist, in his con concepts of Darwinitis and, and neuromania, has indicated the flaws in some of the critiques of consciousness and of spirit. So the first light is that of spiritual consciousness. And this if we look at various mystical traditions, for example, Hildegard of Bingen says a flaming light comes into the womb at a certain stage. And when we think of reincarnation and all these ideas, there must be some coming in of, of light to the body. And feminist theologians like Rosemary uh, Ruther, uh, Ruther uh, indicate that this is, this is a big lie and they're against this idea of light coming into the body. But if we look at, for example, the uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the uh, the non-canonical gospel, we see that Jesus describes us as coming from a place of light into the body, and that the spirit. It is amazing that the spirit, something of such wealth, dwells in such poverty. Kind of gnostic, gnostic idea there. So the spirit is 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 the first light, and and we should never forget that. We we should never forget that astonishing light of everyone's being. We have it. We don't have any. We don't have to do anything to get it, but it's the, it's necessary to realize the value of that. And and scientism, as opposed to science, wants to, to to change that. And certain strands in philosophy wants to replace it with some inferior idea because they have to, since the Enlightenment, come up with a substitute. The second the second stage we move on from the process or, or from the the spirit itself is where the individual maybe on a long path, through a path of darkness, through a path of searching, begins to realize who they are. They begins to understand that the persona, the mask that exists in society, is merely a reflection, and that the true self, or the self with a capital S in, in Jungian terms, I suppose, but the true self is who we are. This is our being. This was before the persona, the self. And this is the, the classic insight of Advaita Vedanta that we must look within and we have it. We are that. We are that great consciousness. So we have that. So the journey from the first, the, the, the fact that we are spiritual creatures 
to realizing that in a deep sense with the implications of that that we must recognize in, in other beings and that perhaps this consciousness is in the universe is would be the first two illuminations proceeding from there there is a there is another illumination whereby at a certain stage we may experience the higher light we may experience spiritual light we may experience consciousness beyond ourself and this this is for example seen in relation to the evolution of the idea of cosmic consciousness in the west with william book and his his, his description of the great light which 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 came into him when he was coming home in a, in a buggy one night but this idea is of a breakthrough a breakthrough which i've called a kind of nexus to the numinous where we puncture our through the matrix through our sense of reality and either by ascending or through a process of attach or, or linking with a descending light or consciousness as uh, as your as debashish talked about in the context of your conversation chakras we we begin to form a link and once that link happens whether through a near-death experience or through buddhist practices or meditation practices we we don't really go back because we realize that there is something bigger and that process is like a recognition it's a recognition that that which is within us is of the same feature of, of of that that we experience so it's experiential and I, I, in parapsychological terms a lot of experiences are around that area where people encounter some light phenomenon the fourth stage would be where having gone through that process the individual begins to craft that connection whereby they extend their nexus to the numinous so that they can be almost amphibious and move between the spiritual world and the material world and that that's a process all these stages have gradations there could be many gradations in each stage but that's a the, the highest or one of the highest levels that we can achieve and great spiritual leaders do are able to move between the different dimensions but not not just great spiritual spiritual leaders uh, and that could again be the essence of, of of a lot of great spiritual journeys and the, the fifth illumination is the illumination associated with moving to the next world associated with death the death process uh well the death process begins when we're born uh, to a certain extent uh as as beckett put in a very depressing way he said uh, we, they give birth to stride the grave the light gleams an instant and all is darkness now i don't agree, i don't agree with that existential uh, view of of life but in the sense that we're always preparing for the process of dying and dying is a journey if we look at victor hugo for example he said dying is a great preparation for moving on to the great light and it's very very important in, in the buddhist traditions catholic traditions christian traditions so that illumination is characterized by light and in all stages there's a movement from darkness to light from darkness to light there is no stage where we don't encounter darkness there seems to be a succession moving from darkness to light so so i i would say that 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 those five illuminations define my understanding of the mystical evolution and there's other dimensions such as the path of light which we may explain 
Well, I am reminded of a classic of the spiritualist literature. If I recall correctly, it was Carl Wickland, who was uh, a very well-known medical doctor and spiritualist in the United States, who wrote a book called The Bright Light of Death. If you look at the, the spiritualist churches in the United States, they're all associated or often have names associated with light because light is fundamental. I suggest if there is a unifying religion in the future, that it may be based on light because light is a characteristic that unites all the different traditions. And certainly the spiritualists and people who are who are au fait with the otherworldly experiences uh, and people who are familiar with the death process will be struck or are struck by the, the, the recurrence of light. And associated with that is a deeper idea, an idea which I, I call the path of light. So it's not just that there are descriptive phenomena. I'm not an academic anymore, so I'm talking from a personal perspective of what I believe to be the case. And I, I'm not merely trying to review the literature or say what other people said. I'm saying what I believe in. So the path of light is another idea that I would put forward. And this is very, very interesting. It occurs in science because uh, there's a parallel process in science and in mysticism that there are certain indicators or certain precursors or certain signals that are made available or become available or are followed by scientists which lead to results. We can see this, for example, with Robert Boyle and his investigation of bioluminescence and a chicken that glowed one night when he came home and he found it in the pantry and the servant told him that it was glowing blue or green and he began to investigate that. So the bioluminescence led him down a particular path. One of the, the great Irish chemists uh, and uh, scientists. And there are many other scientists who saw something glowing in the laboratory when they couldn't explain it. Some light. We see this also in relation to Pierre Curie and his investigation of piezoelectricity and piezoluminescence. The, the fact that light can be obtained by putting pressure on certain stones, like quartz, for example. So we see it in the interest in people who are interested in vision, in all the people who are interested in electromagnetism, in the great scientists who are interested in parapsychology, William Crookes uh, and, and Barrett. They were, they were interested in light, in vision, and in, in the unseen world. And many of them believed that they would find spirit when they looked there. And of course, the ECG was developed by Hans Berger, who was, uh, who, who was led to it because he was interested in telepathy. So there's an idea, and, and if we follow on from there, all the great scientists from uh, Newton to Einstein up to the modern day as well, Bernard Carr, they're, they're all in some way looking at the nature of light. So light in some way is self-revealing and leads them on. Now, in the, in, the same, in the same vein, in mystical experiences, it's light leads mystics on. And there's a certain pathway. We can see this in, in the Sufi tradition. We can see it in the shamanic tradition, where there are a certain series of lights internal lights, lights that come when the eyes are closed, for example, that indicate a certain path. They're in some way, they're almost physiological. So this light inside leads people. And in the Kundalini experiences, we see this light phenomenon. Uh, so there's an idea that if you follow the 
the light indicators, you can come to, uh, you, can, you can evolve. And if you think of certain, there's certain features, for example, or certain signatures, for example, like the peacock's feather. The peacock's feather has always been important. One of the reasons why it's important is because these symbols appear during mystical experiences. That green, purple uh, idea appears during mystical experiences. And we see that the peacock's feather is important in alchemy, in Christian theology, in the description of uh, psychedelic experiences. And the peacock's feather is also important, has also been important in scientific terms. Robert Hooke, for example, investigated how the peacock's feather behaved and tried to understand why the colours couldn't be seen when it was put in water. And right up to recent times, the study of the structure of the peacock's feather has helped people to understand the nature of photonic crystals and interference patterns that cause different colours. So there are, again, certain mystical signatures that lead to investigations. We could make the same case in relation to uh, the ruby, for example, has always been associated, uh, has a special impact on people. And this is was used in relation to the evolution of laser technology. So you, there's plenty of examples. The pearl is another example, and pearlescence, where the behavior of light leads the poet, the mystic, to investigate, to appraise, to appreciate something which much later the scientist comes to investigate and finds that there is indeed something. So we have the sense of two, two different paths which in some way are both moving towards the light but there's a different price to pay in both cases. I understand that some of the very early scientists maybe in ancient times looking at light thought that light was emitted by the eyes, that we illuminate the world that we see. And then later Newton explained, no, it's light coming into the eyes. Uh, but I think the earlier version uh, was in touch with something, which is that the world doesn't exist at all, but for the light of consciousness. Well, that's, that's very well put. I think that's correct. And even, uh, Jeffrey, when you look at we say you learn in school about Newton's theory about light and how it behaves, and 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 one thinks one has understand it, stood it, and then you go and you look at Goethe and his theory of color and his understanding of light is completely different. It's it's almost radically different in some senses, in some subtle senses. So one of the one of the insights that he had, I think, was that the spe the colors come in the margin between darkness and lightness. So in between dark and light, he noticed when he was looking through the prism that you get that prismatic effect. So it's it's in between, and in many ways, our life is in that in between, between light and darkness. We're the color in between it, and, and there's clues from the colors we come across. They're not as insignificant. But he also focused on the subjective experience of light. Now, my argument in relation to the entirety of science is that whatever science comes up with will not be greater than the consciousness that came up with it in the first place. Whatever it comprehends can't be greater than the comprehender. We are the comprehender. We have that comprehending consciousness. 
So it is strange that people identify certain achievements in science and say, isn't it incredible that that person, of course it's incredible, but it's the consciousness behind it which is incredible. And we all share that. And that, for me, is the spiritual dimension behind it. And of course, that spiritual dimension is linked we talked about cosmic con consciousness and the third illumination. We could also talk about divine consciousness because in all the religions, the divine is in some way linked with light. There's very few ideas which don't have light, the divine light as the source and in some way emanates in the Neoplatonic idea or in the Hermetic idea and Hermeticism as it came through the Renaissance uh, Magi uh, to us today, or in the Kabbalah, Lurianic Kabbalah, or in uh, Hasidism and Hasidic Judaism, we see that focus uh, on the light. Now, some some people believe that I'm against magic. I'm not against magic, and I'm not against divine magic. My argument is that if you look at people like Dean Radin, they they correctly draw the parallel between, if you like, uh, real magic and the development of the cities. My argument is that the mystical path leads to the result, the same result that one seeks on the magical path, but the commitment to the higher force, higher than the ego, the divine will, is very, very important. But there is no commitment to the divine will that doesn't exist without some commitment to a basic moral principle, some basic moral idea of compassion or understanding that underpins all religions or all spiritual traditions. You know, my mentor, Arthur Young, the inventor of the Bell helicopter, thought a lot about light. He equated light with purpose. Uh, and the reason he did that is because of a, a principle in physics known as the principle of least action. Light will always take the shortest path to get to its destination. And that implies that it knows where it's going. It's very different than the principle of least resistance that water would take coming down a hill side, for example. And uh, it implied to him that, uh, Spirit is, is equated with purpose itself, that you, even the purpose of each individual. And it's interesting that science tries to deny the very idea of purpose, which they call teleology. And teleology is almost completely excluded from science. I, I derived a lot of um, uh, support when I began to look for solutions or, or comprehensions to explain to myself what was going on. You can come across this, a lot of very interesting writers about the connect. Walter Russell is another person who's written, exten written extensively about the nature of light and that we are light. Uh, but Arthur Jung explained very well for me, and I have respect for him because he was an inventor, because he put his, his money where his mouth was and went out and demonstrated that he was capable as an individual of bringing something into existence in relation to his, his helicopter, for example. So you have to take him seriously. So when he comes then to talk in scientific terms about the esoteric traditions, which he was very aware of, you have to have a lot of respect for him. And there is something also, if we look at, and I'm not going to do pseudoscience, but in relation to uh, masslessness, the other idea of light, the idea of its masslessness, we see that as a critical factor in relation to any idea of discussions about space-time and about what is space and what is time and does it exist. And these 
these strange particles that exist without mass. So that connection between uh, masslessness and light is very, very important. And his descent in his V-shaped explanation uh, linking into the, the great chain of being. And of course, if we look at people like David Bohm, he, he describes matter in terms of a kind of crystallized light, where light becomes frozen in some sense. So in some sense, when we begin to consider matter as a kind of condensed, heavy light, we can begin to see the world in a more unified perspective. And to a certain extent, that deconstructive notion is there. But also, in relation to uh, the biological context, I think that certain biologists are more conscious that function drives biology and that they've always talked about cells and or they used to talk about cells as kind of static fixed things and in fact uh, Robert Hooke who, who came up with the idea of a cell he wasn't really looking at a cell when he was looking at the cork under the microscope he was describing what it looked like it appeared to be a cell but of course cells communicate with the outside world and there are processes and in many senses I, I, I wonder whether we can we could make an analogy between some of the cells that have feelers outside their body, some sensors outside their body, and that mystical sense that exists that individuals have. There is some sense of a feedback mechanism, a feedback loop into a wider consciousness. And I think that in the future, that functional bit will be a bit more respected, not only in biology, but extrapolating from there. Now, again, remember that the mystical tradition doesn't have to explain itself to science. I think it's, it's a mistake in some senses to to, to bend down before science and say, please recognize us. I think that's a big mistake. And I think that certain spiritual traditions should be careful. Of course, there has to be a healthy dialogue. But it's not necessary. And in fact, it may be, may be bad for a spiritual evolution for it to have to explain itself to someone who is incapable of understanding it. Scientists these days are like the high priests of, of our culture. And uh, I know you point out there's a great danger in allowing uh, scientists to achieve uh, a position of moral authority when science seems to be devoid of morality if you look at pure science. Jeff, about it was less than a year ago I was over, over with you in Albuquerque. We had a great time and a lot of conversations. Now, the one of the reasons why I was there talking to you, and, and when we had our talk on globalization, I said then, before all the, all the things that are going on now, that my greatest concern was about the movement towards a scientocracy, as anticipated by people like H.G. Wells, who talked in the Open Conspiracy and the New World Order books that he, he wrote, about the fact that we were moving towards a scientifically run uh, world. Uh, and that's going to continue. Uh, that, that's happening. Uh, we're nearly there. Uh, and uh, I, I have great, great concerns about that. And I have great concerns about the lack of a, a moral cons construct within science itself. And I have a great, a, a great concern about the exclusivity uh, of s science or more properly scientism, where we have a misuse uh, of science sometimes for political and ideological purposes and sometimes with the noblest of intentions 
But we have to be careful because the noblest of intentions, the road to hell, we know about about that. And I, I'm very concerned. And that's that's all the more reason why we have to uh, develop individually because spiritual individuals will protect their spirit first. And this is a, a great an observation from the uh, the various extremes. They, they knew that uh, they they would never be able to persuade people that were spiritually evolving. And that, that's one of the reasons why they've been so hostile to spiritually evolved groups, and particularly groups, I suppose you could take the Hasidic Jews uh, in Germany, because they, they, were, they stood out and they were very spiritual people. So they, they, they will inevitably, such groups, or all spiritual groups, uh, become, come into the firing line. So this is why I think it's very, very important that the different religious traditions begin to get out of their silos and talk to each other on a higher plane about protecting the spirit, the spirit of the human race, beyond their religions, and also to avoid the possibility that the visions will be created to set them against each other to facilitate other agendas. So, so, so yes, this, I'm not, not saying that to be depressing at this time of the year. This is We're coming up to the festival of Santa Lucia in Sweden, where the, the, used to, where, where the children bring in the light, going back to uh, St. Lucy who, who, in Sicily. Uh, and again, there's, there's arguments. People say it's linked to Lucifer and all this, and, and uh, Swedish pagan traditions, but it's a beautiful ceremony. Uh, and also we're coming up to the, 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 the midwinter and Newgrange and the light and coming back. So, so we, we also have always have to look for the light. And some mystical and spiritual teachers suggest that it's precisely at that, those times where it's very, very important for us to develop spiritually. And it's very, very important for individuals to develop themselves on their own because they have that astonishing light. All of your viewers have that astonishing light of being in them, as uh, Haifa said. So, so we must use that. So I'm, I'm, I'm not pessimistic in the long term, but we, we will encounter certain uh, dark forms uh, ahead. Speaking of the dark forces, James, I'm reminded of uh, George Orwell's classic book, 1984, which paints a very dark picture of, of the political landscape. And as, as I recall, he uses the metaphor of light in a kind of perverse way. He talks about, uh, he meets a person who he, feels inspired by somebody in the government and and he he says we are going to meet in the place where it is always light later on he's thrown into prison and in this prison they keep the lights on day and night so that people can't uh, even sleep and uh, so light becomes transformed into a, a horrible metaphor and i think there's a sense in in which Forces of fascism, forces of darkness, uh, will, will take metaphors such as spiritual light and, and find a way to pervert it. Uh, yes, that's very well put. Uh, the, the, we will get light whether we like it or not. If we don't get spiritual light, we will get artificial light. And the artificial light, of course, it's fantastic. We can talk on screens and, but science and the market doesn't seem to be able to stop itself. So uh, it proliferates 
And it's very, very difficult. This is a new thing in human evolution where we've had access to such technology. And we haven't been very good at it, uh, about managing it. So there is a danger that we begin to mistake the carrier and the carried. We begin to mistake the, uh, the content, the signal and the form in which it brings. And also how it's used. Um, so, so, so this idea of what the content is what the essence of the message is, is very, very important. But artificial light is, is, is a punishment and, and, and it, is, it is a problem in relation to uh, evolution. And it, it brings back to, to, to another, another sense, the contradistinction that, that, that perhaps I should emphasize. There is another idea associated sometimes with the, the, the person of light, the man or woman of light, the idea of the angelic being, the idea of the twin, the divine twin, the daemon sometimes, uh, various types of, of guardian angels, various types of higher self that we see in all the mystical traditions, which suggests that we evolve to become aware of our higher self or our divine caretaker or, or our higher nature who is there for us that is that is the extension of our of our being and this may be the being which is psychic or can engage in parapsychological uh, affairs or has certain powers or has certain cities there is a an interesting idea I, I put this in terms of the figure eight that in some ways another way of looking at the the idea of the spiritual evolution is that there is some a figure which We'll take the figure eight for simplicity, which comes into the being at birth or uh, at the start and which evolve, which grows, it grows in relation to its relationship to the ground and it grows in relationship upwards. Its center moves up and down our, ener our energy centers and that the process of, of illumination um, expands that. So that at a certain stage, and this is this is manifest in, in a lot of alchemic literature and in mystical art, we see this figure eight, that the mystic, in a way, projects the upper part of the eight, eight, eight outside their body so that they communicate with the higher realm. And that's the realm where the divine twin exists. And in some extent, the efforts of magicians to contact their holy guardian angel is similar to what in Corban's terms, the man of light, whether Surawardi or uh, Mani did in relation to contacting their divine twin, that gives them inspiration, that gives them direction, that is the essence of their divine self, that this is actually who we are. And if we go through a mystical or a spiritual evolution, we can utilize those higher skills that that help us to, to, to punctuate uh, reality. And we can see that figure eight is very, very important. The eight eights in chess, this eight eights in the I Ching, the eight is crucial in Judaism. It's after the seventh day, the eight is important because it's transcendent. This figure eight is very, very important. We can see it in certain mystical traditions uh, the, the, the way the breath moves around the body, I suppose we can see that in the secret of the golden flower. We can see a kind of figure eight in relation to the movement of energy. So 
there are many ways of looking at it that all bring us back to finding your own light in the Hasidic tradition or in the, in the Kabbalistic tradition, in the Lurianic tradition, gathering in the sparks, the sparks that have been distributed, to gather in the sparks of light. And this is, this is part of what our, our evolutionary process in spiritual terms is. If we don't do that, then we're, we will get the other, the other artificial light. And that can never give us, it doesn't have the effective quality that spiritual light does. The effective quality in the sense that something that impacts uh, on us. And I enjoyed your talk with Michael Joward the, the other day about emotions, uh, when you were t- talking about emotions. But again, in relation, and, and I agreed with most of the things he said. Um, and in a way, the uh, idea of spiritual light embraces all those things because the emotions, again, are only pathways for something. Even if we talk about the emotion of anger, there is some being which is having that emotion. The being is the thing that we are. It's the light force. We are light and we come from light. Uh, And in most spiritual traditions, Gnostic traditions, we are to return to light. And in many ways, the artificial light is to lead us in the wrong direction. So we have to get a balance right or we can be mistaken. And this is the classic stories about the will of the wisp, the light that we see when we're coming home that brings us the wrong direction, the, the misleading light, the lights used by smugglers to bring the ship to, to crash on the rocks so they, they can take their, their, their provisions. Uh, this idea of the false light is, is, and even we see this in the cloud of unknowing, that we also have to be careful. They mention in the cloud, in, the, in, in, in that classic mystical book, that we can be deceived by some of the lights we perceive to think that they're spiritual things when they're not. And I I think that may happen sometimes. I'm not criticizing the psychedelic use uh, or or use of psychedelics, but we have to be careful that we're not, we're we're not, uh, now of course those things can have an effective and a beneficial uh, impact, but sometimes with, with certain other substitutes, they can have a an effect which is a simulacrum of a spiritual uh, effect. I think when it comes to psychedelics and other extraordinary experiences, near-death experiencers talk about moving into the light. The key ultimately is to be able to integrate that into your whole lifestyle. If all you have is a mystical experience, I saw the light last week and I'm not doing anything about it uh, this week, it's it's a lost opportunity. Yes, I, I agree. I think that, exactly, and, and this is about the quality of the experience. When we talked about the, uh, the, the third illumination, the kind of breakthrough, uh, if that genuinely happens, People can never forget that experience. I've had I've had contact from uh, some of your your fantastic viewers who have shared some experiences with me, and it's clear that this experience of of light, of of feeling of a connection with the sun or other other uh, very extraordinary experiences change people. We saw that as we mentioned before in Philip K. Dick thinking about his experience with light and Jacob Burma and, and all those figures. But if it's a genuine experience, the person will be affected in such a way that the life will never be the same again. Now it may be very disturbing sometimes. We know that near death experiences people can be afraid to relate them. It's it, 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 they may be embarrassed to say that they didn't want to come back to 
this existence of the family mightn't be too happy. So yes, but that's where the 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 fourth process, the, the process of crafting and developing that uh, comes in, and it can happen to anybody. It can happen to atheists, people that don't believe in 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 any tradition. Uh, but yes, and there is there is the other point that's very very important, and my point about mystical or spiritual evolution is that all the great mystics bring something back so they go to the cave but they bring something back this is the hero's journey they bring something back uh, so they don't disappear uh, or we never hear about them they come back with something and they may be if we look at maslow's uh, maslow's work in relation to peak experiences they may be very successful in the real world because they have they're clearer about what they want to do and there are other studies as far as i understand uh, which indicates that people who have had mystical experience may be happier in a number of psychological ways as well. So the point about it is that when the person gets a platform, well, then they can proceed to develop from there. Now, uh, uh, as well as, and, and referring back to your previous question, uh, I think what what the rationalist enlightenment has done is to take this part of the second element and to substitute it, the second illumination, the idea, uh, an idea that the, the illumination is purely in the brain. It's an rational illumination. It's, it's, it's confined to that, and that's all it is. And it's sought to substitute one for the other. So one believes that, okay, I'm a rational, reasonable being, and that's what illumination is about. Uh, and if you look back at, there has been many schools of illuminism uh, throughout uh, Europe uh, and, and the rest of the world, but in, in Europe in particular, uh, which broke off from Christ mainstream Christianity and were seen as heresies. And they all emphasize the idea that we have this light within, it, within us, we have access to the divine force, and we can develop. And that was similar basis of the, the, the Quaker inner light movement. But it's the same idea that we have access to this, it's there, uh, we don't need a big structure to do so, but we have to engage in the process. Now, what many priesthoods and what many secret societies and specialist esoteric societies do is they formalize and ritualize, sometimes consistent with the mystery traditions, this evolution which is there. And if we look at certain of the, of the anthropologists or, or people who have studied the shamanic traditions, we see that this light experience is there in all the in all the, uh, the 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 cultures which didn't become too complex. When a culture becomes complex, the priesthood evolves and they develop more complex notions of what is essentially the same thing. So, if one approaches the Corpus Hermeticum, the the writings about Hermes and the Hermetic writings, or uh, as translated uh, through Ficino and the others. We see the same process underneath it all, the idea of that five-stage process that, 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 I, that I talked about. So it, it, it can help us to, to look at these great uh, elaborate systems, but not to confuse the elaboration with the, the basic process that we have. And also people are becoming aware that the Greeks had this light tradition as well, but it has been, it has been suppressed in some extent in favor of the rationalist perhaps Aristotelian uh, viewpoint, and then in the Christian context, Augustine kind of 
he com- coming from a, a Manichaean tra- background began to kind of suppress those ideas within the church and the ritualization and the crystallization has taken out that personal experience of reality of spiritual light which is critical for the individual to go on the, on that process james you've uh, had such a rich discussion with me i want to make a couple of points so that i don't lose them one is about our viewers i'm well aware that i hear from many viewers people who are not necessarily well educated who are not scholars such as yourself but who have had these experiences and write very passionately uh, on the comment section about their personal experiences. And there's a, a real sense of authenticity there. And I think they're drawn to this channel because you do provide uh, a, an intellectual context for them that they, they may not have in, in their life because, you know, they're caught up in their families and in, in their work. Another point I want to address is in reference to the number eight that that you mentioned. Uh, It was so beautiful. The the one point I think that's worth emphasizing is that the figure eight is also a symbol of infinity. And it suggests that, to me, it suggests that we are part of infinity. We're connected with infinity. We are infinite beings. And I find sometimes uh, when I point this out, uh, occasionally I do in monologues, there, there's a segment of the viewers out there uh, for different reasons who, who take offense at that idea. They think it's terribly wrong. And it's usually because they are, one might say, caught up in, in another aspect of our being, which is our dualistic nature, because we're, we are infinite, but at the same time, because we're infinite, probably, we, we get caught up in dualism and right and wrong and good and bad and in the battle against uh, an enemy. In the irony is because we're infinite, the enemy is really us. Yes, this is a very important point, and I've heard you in this discussions. I think you've had the similar uh, discussions with Paul Levy. You were you were talking about this issue, uh, and a number of other people. It, it's it's run through your discussions. First, to say about your viewers, uh, it, it's quite amazing the range of people uh, and the range of skills and the people that are very accomplished in different domains. Uh, and uh, that they have explained and communicated their experiences to me. Remarkable, really, their accomplishments. Um, people don't have time to, to engage and look at the literature. I, I, I was always interested in the spiritual literature, but it wasn't until I began to experience certain things that I began to look at it again in a different way. And people don't have time. I, I made the time for myself to try and understand, not just about that, but also to understand what's happening in the world, because I've worked in the, these things. And I, the point is, they're very, very much connected. But the experience is remarkable. And also that it's, there is a noetic quality about the experience that, again, some of your viewers explain to me how they derive knowledge through the downloads of information and, and uh, remarkable knowledge that they they never had before uh, about the nature of reality um, that, uh, that's one point the point that I understand a bit about and this is about the 
uh, your approach. It's not about the that we're not infinite beings, that we're not spiritual beings. But sometimes I think that the if a person extrapolates from what what you say about that in the end it's all non-dualistic, they may say therefore he doesn't see that there's any right or wrong. So they might be concerned that if they were sitting with you watching Harry Potter, you've seen Harry Potter, haven't you? Yeah. They might be concerned they're sitting with <laughs> watching Harry Potter with you. And you'll you'll turn around to them and say, which one of these is the bad guy? And that you won't know the <laughs> Voldemort is the bad guy and you say oh well all in the end I'm joking you understand the point I make the point being that yes of course but in in, in this in uh, my idea is from the uh, from the uh, spiritual traditions from the near-death experiences when the person has these experiences it has an impact on how they see other people they usually come back with an enriched sense of their relationships to other people because they have perceived that everybody has that consciousness and they have therefore to respect it so for me as a lawyer i'm increasingly of the view that this is the origin of justice that justice is not a construct that evolves and is made because people want to do to to, to do things that dimension is there it is certainly a, a, a system of control but that these central ideas of justice, in a way, are related to the higher spiritual processes of evolution, suggesting in some sense that the conscious, for well, I believe it, the, the conscious or divine forces, of, of, of course, not of course for the Gnostics, but of course for me, are beneficial, creative, compassionate, and that the, the reflection in our life has to identify that if we don't uh, there has to be an opposite to compassion that compassion is a choice this is where our free will comes into it that if if we say well it doesn't matter in the end that uh, we'll all end up in the same place it seems to take away that karmic perception uh, in the universe so only in that sense i agree with you but also i would suggest I don't know if this is true, but if you look at the uh, Hasidic tradition and the Baal Shem Tov, and, and, and they say the same thing as, as you say at the higher level, that of course it's all God's work and that there is, we can't draw these dualities. And in that sense, that's right. All I would say to qualify that is that that doesn't take away from our need to be compassionate in this world and to believe in the magic of compassion in this world in order to not just help us in our journey but to help other people but that's not that's not just some kind of burden that's enforced upon us it's the consequence of spiritual evolution that we see as you emphasize as you've always emphasized that we're all one and that's and the point is to bring that down into this plane and to apply that in a real sense so so it's 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 just a a difference of, of emphasis i see where you're coming from because you've started off talking about mysticism studying mysticism studying parapsychology and perhaps uh, people don't identify where your your foundations are in, in, in the argument and it's it can be 
perhaps oversimplified. So, so, so that would be the point I would make about the, the, the viewers in that context. I agree with you. And also the eight, of course, we can see it in the magician. We can see it in the tarot card. Although notice in the tarot card and the magician that the eight is moving away. It's separating from the being. And I think that's a mistake. My, my idea is that this eight figure is in us. It's an extension of ourselves. And when it separates from ourselves, we're separating from the mystical uh, body, the, the, the person of light that we all have access to. Every conversation with you is incredibly stimulating. You brought up the connection with uh, one of my guests, Paul Levy, and uh, who thinks of uh, our waking state as being like a dream. And in a dream, actually, every part of the dream is part of our consciousness. He says the same is true when we're awake. We are all of it. Well, I, I agree. Well, I don't agree with that, no, but some aspect of it. I mean, the idea that uh, we are dreaming, we're in a dreaming state and, and uh, our existence uh, is a dream in some way, underpins many descriptions of reality. We can see it in, in Zen Buddhism and that. For example, my fear about its statement in that form is similar to the objection that the viewers might have in relation to the infinity process. Well, therefore, why do we have to take it so seriously? And therefore, why do we have to have moral agency? And therefore, that ties into the kind of romantic idea of feeling. We are above it all. We don't have to concern ourselves with the individual concerns of other people or the, you know, that romantic notion which says, well, it doesn't matter about the in other individuals if that feeling is there or some of the, my concerns about the left-hand path that we can throw morality out the window altogether. We can throw compassion out. Why do we have to bother about that if we're in a dream state? So I understand the point. I can understand its poetic force, its mystical force, but I wouldn't extrapolate uh, from there as a, uh, a way to run our society. Uh, uh, you could say that most people are hypnotized, which I do believe in, but I believe that being hypnotized are not in, in, in their true state. And in relation to books about the future, uh, I, I'm increasingly drawn back to the prescience of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the idea that we'll all be in the position of uh, Jack Nicholson, who is, or well, one of the other characters, <laughs> the characters actually that sign themselves in voluntarily, where we're getting our medication, where they're speaking to us quietly, where we can't, we can't go uh, where we want to do. It's all for our own benefit because the, the scientism behind it can, knows what's best for us and we have to abide by it. And then we have to speak very, very quietly because they really want what's, what's good for us. And, and they talked about the combine, meaning Nurse Ratched works for the combine, any any combination of people that were that seek to control and i think that was quite near the uh, mark as was a clockwork orange by anthony burgess and the idea that well maybe we can mechanically take out the bad bits of humanity maybe we can stop the violence stop them young men being violent and therefore but of course once we do that uh we're taking away human nature itself and but scientists are trying to do this already 
Raymond Tallis talked about that in relation to the effort to say there's no such thing as free will. This is a frightening doctrine, and people should resist it. They shouldn't accept these. Uh, it's poor science when you look at some of the studies that are utilised to extrapolate a principle that we have no such thing as free, free will. And they're dangerous, because when you say there's no spirit as part of the dispiriting process, and that has happened, I predicted that a while ago, there are books coming out about saying that spirit is bad. This is the next part of the deconstruction. You've no spirit, consciousness doesn't exist, free will doesn't exist, well then you're, 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 you're preparing us for a very dark future. And that's why I think that religious leaders should wake up because they're really not serving their, their, their people, their adherents, their people that believe in, or other people, uh, if they let those forces uh, take over. Because the very thing that they claim to be protecting uh, will be subjugated uh, to, to a more sinister, sinister, of course, is another word for left hand, I'm not saying it, but, but uh, sinister forces. The errors that you're describing are heartless. and. People can take a, a beautiful spiritual idea like that, and, and if you isolate it from the heart, from the emotion, then it can go in, into a very bad direction. But we're whole beings, and it seems to me it's very important that we cultivate the heart. In fact, as a parapsychologist, I think one of the biggest obstacles to psychic functioning, I believe we all have enormous psychic capability, but we shut ourselves down because of the pain in the world, that uh, we need to protect ourselves from the suffering of other people. If we open ourselves up to, to it, it can become overwhelming. But as one opens psychically, uh, one one's heart opens and we do experience the pain of other people and and that has to be a a guiding light for us actually that that suffering those obstacles that we face become in effect a mystical light i i, I know that uh and and you know that certain people that under, that are psychically open can incur injury as well because of their openness and, be, and taking on the pain of others so uh, because of their uh, extreme empathy I suppose they, they, they can suffer as a result of that uh, and suffering is an important point and this is, uh, this is a very important point I hope at some stage we can talk about transhumanism because a lot of transhumanism is posited on the idea of avoiding suffering which is interesting because it, it kind of ties into a Buddhist idea <laughs> of avoiding suffering. And then so it makes you question the value and, and the, the, the extent of suffering. So we have different ideas of suffering. For example, if we compare Buddhism and the Judeo-Christian idea of suffering, where suffering is part of life and it's, part, it's in some ways a feedback mechanism about the interaction. So we can't avoid it. So there, there are interesting issues ahead for some of the spiritual traditions and philosophies when they encounter issues like transhumanism. Some may correspond a bit more with some of the driving forces or may be hijacked in a way to, 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 uh, to correspond. Um, and also, you reminded me of uh, Misselberger wrote a book called The Three Dangerous Magi about Gurdjieff and Crowley and Osho. And he said that, the talking about the left-hand path, that the danger with the left-hand path is 
uh, or the Luciferian tradition in particular, he was talking about in the context of Blavatsky and Steiner, is that the Luciferian tradition becomes heartless, that it sacrifices the heart for other goals, and in doing so, that is, is the great weakness of the left-hand path, despite whatever uh, beneficial ways it may encounter. So the heart is critical. For the mystic, the heart is the source of intelligence, and it's also about a different sort of intelligence from the, from rational intelligence. So in many senses, we know that certain people who have studied the heart begin to understand that it's a more complex entity uh, than, uh, than, than understood before. And also, we have the, the associations with, with the color green and uh, life, and we see this also in the mystical tradition. The green light is, a, is another... Is, is a mystical uh, state. Actually, there's a, another interesting connection. Green lights, walk, don't walk. The green light is a classic stage in mystical expansion in the Sufi tradition and the movement into the to, to that domain, uh, another link between the artificial and, uh, uh, and the mystical. But yes, the heart is critical. And uh, the heart in science... Again, we have to. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not criticizing science because a lot of science is motivated for the best of motivations. But I'm criticizing about the use of science and and scientism and the failure to to integrate a sense of the dignity of the individual or animals for that matter uh, in, into the uh, the process because they see them as objects that can be worked upon. Uh, and this will come back to us as well. We will be become the objects uh, very, very soon uh, in, the, in this process. And don't expect to be treated any differently. And people will say, well, that's not... But when the, the setters of principle are purely focused on objectives, facilitated by artificial intelligence, where there's objectives and there's ways to achieve the objective, you can expect ideas of dignity to disappear. And the attempt in the second part of the... 20th century to create a system of human rights based on human dignity is already disappearing and i don't think that people fully realize the implications of that well james i'm delighted to uh, let our viewers know we're planning many many conversations uh, to come they'll be getting sick of me uh, this discussion has been so rich there's so much to digest here let me ask you if, if you have anything further to add. Well, it's amazing that you must be psychic, Jeffrey, that you knew I had one more thing to mention. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I, I was thinking about, uh, as a student, I used to work in, in, in pubs and things, as you do, uh, to finance your studies. And I remember serving a, a pint, I think it was a pint of ale, to a fellow called uh, Colin Wilkinson. And he was a quite well-known Irish singer at the time doing the circuits. And he then went on and he kind of made a breakthrough. You know the way they say a person became uh, famous overnight after 40 years or something, but he wasn't that old. But uh, he, he then made a breakthrough. He, he sung in Phantom of the Opera. He developed that role in London. And then he, he became critical in Les Miserables. Now, Les Miserables is interesting, and, and we know you may remember the older film version of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. 
And there's a crucial incident in that that you're pro I'm sure you're familiar with uh, about this, uh, which, which ties in some of these ideas, perhaps to finish off. Um, so Colin Wilkinson did uh, Val played Valjean, and he also uh, played the bishop in a subsequent film. But there's the famous incident uh, in Les Miserables where Valjean has uh, been released from prison. He can't get a place to stay, and he stays with the person who uh, is, is a bishop. He doesn't know he's a bishop at the time. And he, he robs his silverware uh, during the night, and he makes off. And the police, the gendarmes, catch him, and they bring him back to the bishop. So here's a man who has been in, in the, the galleys for uh, many years, and he's facing going back again after having done something which was clearly wrong. So when they bring him in to the bishop, the bishop understands what has happened, and he pretends that he has given these things as a gift to Valjean. And he goes further and takes the two candlesticks, which were important and beloved to him, and he ensures that the candlesticks are uh, given to Valjean. And Valjean is surprised, and the bishop indicates to the police that he has given them to Valjean, and in fact Valjean was telling the truth. So in some senses, the bishop is going against the law. We can see this in other, uh, with other priestly figures, for example, The Scarlet and the Black, which is an interesting film story based on the true events of Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty in the Vatican. Uh, during the Nazi occupation, the bishop goes against the law, and he goes against the law because he's committed to the higher principle. And he says to Valjean, here, remember, I have bought your soul back for you. I have I've, I've turned you away from evil. So in giving the candlesticks to uh, Valjean, the candlesticks represent the possibility of light. In some senses, you could see it like the spine and the illumination that goes, the head is the illumination. He gives the candlesticks to Valjean when he is at his lowest point. And in doing so, he demonstrates the magic of compassion and the magic of facilitating someone else, of identifying with someone else when they're at the lowest point. And it's often when someone is at the lowest point that their capacity to understand the power of greater forces uh, is revealed. And through the giving of the candlesticks, which Valjean kept for the rest of his life, he did indeed have his soul saved, and he valued that gesture. So that simple gesture, which went against the rules in many ways, uh, demonstrated the opposite of the Faustian pact, the opposite of selling your soul to the devil by a simple demonstration of compassion in a particular context, we can save a soul in a way. And that changes life. And I think Victor Hugo, who was regarded as a saint in, in Vietnam and in, in the Khao Mai religious tradition, um, he believed that death was just preparation for moving on to the next great light. And that example, I think, is one of the uh, one of the transcendent examples from literature of what the mystics uh, are seeking to, to identify, irrespective of the rules, irrespective of the tradition, irrespective of the religion, irrespective of the law, 
it's the power of compassion or love if you want to say it yourself just through that gesture and uh, it's a profound example and it's one well worth uh, reflecting on and light is the subject matter it, it, it appears through all of his great novel Les Miserables and uh, th th there was a good reason why it did so. Well, that's truly one of the most powerful scenes in all of Western literature, and you uh, explained it very clearly. Thank you for that, James. And once again, thank you so much for being with me and with our viewers. Thank you very much, Jeff, and I look forward to our, our next conversations, and I appreciate your, your, your fantastic questions and, and dialogue, uh, as always. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to having many more such conversations with you. You are a gem and a treasure, and I very much appreciate the ability to share you with a wide audience. And for those of you watching and listening, thank you for being with us.